I thought I'd begin with a quotation about Fidelio from the great German conductor Wilhelm Furtwängler, made in 1948, just three years after the defeat of Nazi Germany. He wrote, The conjugal love of Leonora appears to the modern individual armed with realism and psychology irredeemably abstract and theoretical. Now that political events in Germany have restored to the concepts of human dignity and liberty their original significance, this is the opera which, thanks to the music of Beethoven, gives us comfort and courage. Certainly, Fidelio is not an opera in the sense that we are used to, nor is Beethoven a musician for the theatre or a dramaturgist. He is quite a bit more, a whole musician, and beyond that, a saint and a visionary. That which disturbs us is not a material effect, nor the fact of the imprisonment. Any film could create the same effect. No, it is the music. It is Beethoven himself. It is this nostalgia of liberty, he feels, or better, makes us feel. This is what moves us to tears. That phrase, nostalgia of liberty, I think perhaps hints at two things that we might think of and ought to think of about this opera. Beethoven's only opera affects us all in ways that other operas don't. And secondly, it is a strange and unsettling work that, if we think about it closely, asks us questions and fails often to provide easy answers to those questions. OK, just a preliminary thought with some facts first. The opera Libretto is by Joseph Sonleitner from the original French by Jean-Nicolas Bouy, which had been used for the 1798 opera Léonore, or L'amour conjugal, by the French composer Pierre Gavot and for the 1804 opera Leonora by Ferdinando Pyre, which I notice is back in the catalogue. You can now hear Pyre's Leonora. Um, we also know that Beethoven had a copy of the score of Pyre's opera, and there are distinct parallels at certain points within uh, the first version, we'll come to that in a moment, of, 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 of this opera. The first performance was on the 20th of November 1805. The opera was then in three acts, and as you will all know, it was then called Leonora. It wasn't a success, hardly surprising, given that the French army was occupying Vienna at the time. After this rather disappointing, to put it mildly, premiere, Beethoven was persuaded by friends to revise and to shorten the opera into just two acts, which he did with the assistance of Stefan von Breuning. This second version was performed on the 29th of March and the 10th of April 1806 with much greater success. Then, eight years later, Beethoven returned to what is now Fidelio with additions and adjustments to the libretto by Georg Friedrich Treitschke. This version was first performed at the Kärtnertor Theater on the 23rd of May 1814 under the title that we now use, Fidelio. And there was a 17-year-old boy in the audience who'd sold his school books in order to pay for a ticket, his name, Franz Schubert. So, this is the opera that we think of as Ar Fidelio. This is the opera that Calixto Vieto has directed, first uh, uh, in Munich and now here for English National Opera, and which we're going to see tonight. Leonora, disguised as Fidelio, enters the prison where her husband, Floristan, is a political prisoner, unjustly incarcerated by his political enemies. She intends to rescue him by working with the jailer Rocco, whose daughter, Marcelina, has fallen in love with the young man that she supposes to be Fidelio who is, of course, Leonora. Much to the disappointment, all of this, and indeed the anger of her fiancé, Rocco. The governor of the prisoner, prison, that's Don Pizarro, has decided that Florestan must be murdered. And what happens? Well, just remember that Fidelio is what is described technically as a rescue opera. 
We've a quartet of guests tonight to explore Beethoven's opera Fidelia. Edward Gardner, the music director of English National Opera, will be joining us in a while to talk about it and the coming season here at the Coliseum. Natalie Montahab, the soprano, who's covering the role of Marcelina, will be sharing her ideas about the girl who doesn't get the girl, so to speak. And we're also joined by Nicholas Ansel Evans, who's the assistant conductor on this new production of Beethoven's Only Opera. But our first guest is the academic and critic Maria Delgado, who has a particular interest in the work of tonight's director, Calixto Bioto. She's an academic and a critic, and she teaches at Queen Mary in the University of London. So please, will you welcome Maria Delgado. Maria, how, how would you describe, in very general terms, without giving away anything, how would you describe uh, Calixto Bioto's approach to staging opera? Calixto likes to take liberties. I think that's uh, that's what I'd probably describe his approach as. He likes to ask lots of questions about what a, a, a text or an opera that he's working on at the moment means at the particular moment where he's staging it with, for the particular company or for the particular country. So his work is often seen as provocative, contemporary, because he, he often tries to find resonances with what's happening in, in, in the present. So I think he's a director that he's not afraid to... Um, to mess around with or play with or adapt the libretto because he often has a very clear philosophical idea that, that guides um, his, his concept or his idea for a piece and that will and it's often a philosophical idea so perhaps with Fidelia one of the things he's talked to me about is what is justice in the contemporary world and he feels that, that that's one of the questions that Beethoven is asking and that really propels his reading so when he's thinking about the libretto when he's thinking about the music Music, he's often governed by those central questions and they, they, they guide him in thinking about, mm, what shall I do with the libretto? Shall I, shall I leave it at is? Shall I uh, snip here, snip there? And of course, with, with some of the dialogue with, with Beethoven's opera, there's been a tradition of people cutting it back. And so he's working, I think, with and engaging with that tradition. Much of what we do here... Um, in the spoken sections, and indeed what we see perhaps on stage seems to take its cue from the great Argentinian writer Jorge Luis Borges, mm. the author of perhaps the best known to us in, in, in the English-speaking world of that collection of stories, fables, labyrinths. Mm. Mm. Uh, yes, and poems, of course. He, he keeps returning, uh, Borges, to the idea of the labyrinth. And a labyrinth which is both physical and emotional and spiritual and, and, and mental. Um, and I think that's a key idea for Beato. Not only is there a, a physical imprisonment on stage, which is the imprisonment of Florestan, but there's also a whole series of uh, emotional and mental imprisonments. So each character is, to a certain extent, imprisoned within uh, a, a prison of the mind, if you like. Uh, so, so Leonore is facing doubt. She's, she's propelled by that doubt, but it also at times holds her back. Uh, Giacchino is, is, is imprisoned by a really fierce desire for Marcelina. Uh, Marcelina is obsessed and driven by her mad desire for Fidelio. Um, Rocco is driven by a desire for money. 
um, and Pizarro by a really dangerous desire for revenge that leads him to self-harm. So all of them, I think he's exploring the idea of prisons and, and, and this idea very much comes from Borges and that may be one of the reasons why he's stripped, well in fact he's cut the, the, the dialogue um, from, from the original and, and looked at adding the Borges, not to replace it, but to think about ways in which the Borges might offer a commentary, if you like, on the psychological mood of each of the characters. The, we, we live the, the great myth of the labyrinth, which is, of course, the Minotaur, um, mm. and Theseus uh, allow, allowed and helped by Ariadne to escape. But this is a labyrinth of a quite different kind. These are labyrinths either within the mind or literally laid out on the stage from which there is no obvious escape. Yeah, there's no door. There's, the, there's a, a line that he uses from Borges, there will never be a door. Uh, a path that never has an end. And he keeps returning to those ideas. It's almost like an onion that you keep peeling and you keep peeling and you keep peeling and there's never a heart there. And it's the same, you keep going deeper and deeper into the labyrinth, but there's no mine at all. So what are you searching for? And in many ways, I think it, it, it's almost like he's saying we're searching for the demons within ourselves and, and they're ongoing minotaurs that we're constantly engaging with. So I think that that's in many ways the, the, the dominant idea. I think also Argentine culture has been very influential to Calixto on, on this opera. It's not just Borges. He, he uses images, portraits of individuals at a very poignant moment in the opera. And I think that that comes also from the disappeared in Argentina, the, the Madres de la Plaza de Mayo, the mothers of the Plaza de Mayo, who held up those photos of their portraits of their disappeared children and grandchildren and, and, and publicly displayed them constantly saying we must never forget these people, we must never forget them and of course Fidelio uh, never wants to forget or Leonor never wants to forget what, what Florestan represents for her and, and in many ways Florestan stands for all those prisoners, that chorus of prisoners that we must never forget. If, 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 if Beto intends to interrogate this idea of justice, um, what is justice, can there be justice, and mm. um, how can we just to ourselves, how can we construct a society where justice was, this in a sense would also perhaps suggest the word that really mattered hugely to Beethoven, um, Freiheit, freedom, this too is, is no longer to be taken as a given. It's not to be the ideal to which uh, everybody from Florestan to all the other prisoners should aspire. Yes, I think in many ways what he's exploring is what the nature of freedom is in our society. And I think, um, I think that's one of the things that uh, is embodied in, in this extraordinary set that's created by Rebecca Rinkst for the, for the production, which is a, a, a kind of vertical prison in the first act, but, but tilts and becomes a, a horizontal prison in the second act. So, so you think you're moving into a different environment. You think that you're able to adapt, but still society creates different kinds of prisons that kind of keep us Im embedded in, the, in, in, the, in this terrifying culture. And I think the wonders for me of the set is that it, in many ways it's a great metaphor for what I think Calixto is trying to do with the production. But also it suggests so many different things. It's a very conceptual set, but at once it kind of recalls skyscrapers in the city, which are supposed to be all about freedom, the freedom of height, the freedom of all these amazing working environments. And yet we're all positioned like tiny laboratory mice in them. Um, also, 
also this idea uh, at times in, in, in Act Two, when it's, it's Florestan's prison cell, it looks almost like the kind of containers in the back of lorries where, where uh, it, refugees and immigrants and migrants are transported. So I think the great thing about the set is that it's, it, you can't say, oh, it's, 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 it's Guantanamo Bay in the way that certain productions have opted for an approach that it very clearly puts a particular, very clear incarcerated culture on the stage. I think that's not what Calixto is doing. I think he's trying to suggest, and that's a great image, the way in which um, the, the many manifestations of physical environments in our contemporary society have created emotional prisons for us all. A good reminder that you actually are looking at production stills from what you're going to see later tonight on the screen to give you a kind of foretaste of it. Um, if there are changes to the text, if there's a, a, a rethinking of where this play, opera takes place, there are also changes musically too. It begins um, uniquely, in my experience, with the third Leonora Overture, um, which is customarily, perhaps strongly, played between the last two scenes, but here the opera begins with it. Um, in the middle uh, of those two, last two scenes, we get a string quartet who come down, as it were, from on high and play the slow movement from Beethoven's late string quartet, Opus 132. Are, the, are these, what are, the, what are the thoughts behind, as you read Beato's reading of the opera, behind these sorts of changes? I think with the overture, opting for Leonora III, I think probably the reason he's done that is he wants to really set up the situation. It's much longer, of course. It's, it's around 15 minutes. Um, and I think he wants to set up a situation. I think he wants to create, scenically, the idea of Leonore becoming Fidelio. And he does that. He shows her uh, binding her breast. So going from being a, a woman to being a man and what that involves, slicking back uh, her hair, putting on a leather jacket, posing, creating a look, creating a new persona. Because if she can't convince herself, how is she going to convince everybody else around her? But, but the overture, I mean, does something, which is why people have always wondered why it should be between things. It tells musically the entire story of the whole opera. Uh, in a way, there's a sort of counterpoint, therefore. As Leonora is making this extraordinary gender change, uh, which is essential to her purposes, what we're getting is the whole story simultaneously. Time does something different here too, doesn't it? Yes, I think it does. I mean, I think perhaps one of the reasons that, that Calixto has placed it there also is because for, for many of the audiences who are engaging with that production, they know the opera really well. So it's in many ways saying, look, musically, you may think you're going to get something that you know very well, but I'm going to try and give you visually uh, and sonically something quite different. And of course, the use of the string quartet um, in the second half of the production, I think is a wonderful moment of contemplation, a great moment of beauty. And it almost, it's a way of, of in many ways, sonically embodying what is happening on stage. Two people who are coming together after a dreadful period of suffering and separation, who are trying to get to know each other again. And it's not easy. You know, we sometimes think on with rescue operas, they get back together happily ever after. Calixto saying this is not easy. When people are separated for, for long periods of time, it often involves a whole process of getting to know that person again. And I think that moment of delicacy on stage is just beautifully realised. And that string quartet is also incredibly uplifting, despite the melancholy of that moment, of actually reminding us 
why we go and see opera, why we listen to music, because it has the capacity to make us feel better about the world, because it has the capacity to heal us emotionally, because it has a spiritual power that just, you know, centuries after the composition of that opera does not go away. And I think that the insertion of that moment is just beautiful. Thank you very much. Stay with us. I'm sure there'll be questions from the audience. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, we move now, as it were, to the middle part of our evening, which is going to be musical. We have two guests uh, joining us now. The soprano, Natalie Montahab, uh, who's covering the role of Marcelina, and Nicholas Ansel Evans, who's the assistant conductor on this new production of Fidelio. Will you welcome them both, please? Natalie, I'm going to be very cruel and make you, uh, as it were, speak for your supper before you're allowed to, to sing. Um, what, what for you, swing a microphone towards you, so explain it. Um, what makes Marcelina for you an attractive character? Um, Nicholas and I were talking about this earlier, and we both think that Marcelina is a Leonora in the making. Maybe she hasn't been tested yet, as Leonora has, but she's a strong, she's a strong, honest, and just admirable Person. I love the idea that she's going to rescue Rocco later <laughs> in their lives. This is really interesting. <laughs> and, well, why does she sort of extraordinarily fall for Fidelio? It's a kind of coup de foudre, a, a kind of moment of, of mad passion. What is it? And this production, she really does suddenly, you know, her eyes swivel with excitement. Well, Emma Bell looks fantastic. But um, apart from that, Calixto's idea is that everyone in this opera, as you mentioned before, is transfixed by something. And in Calixto's Fidelio, Marcelina doesn't actually see Leonora until she begins the, the quartet, Miris de Wunderbar. So this Marcelina that we're going to see later tonight is obsessed with finding someone to love so that she can feel whole. Uh, and she's decided she doesn't want that person to be Giacchino. So when she sees Fidelio, this is it, it's going to be you. It's not so much about Fidelio's looks or personality as it might be in other productions. And it's not that she's a chip off her father's block, so to speak, um, interested in money, and here comes a man who may be rather better off than Rocco. Uh, yeah, she's, she's all about love. She's not interested in the financial side of things. What are the demands the part makes on you vocally? Well, we can see Sarah here um, in the maze. Uh, the demands in this production are because of the set. It's extremely high and Sarah climbs all over the place while singing absolutely beautifully. So that's a demand. Um, but for anyone singing Marcelina, I think that the, the demands of the role are that she sings continually for about 20 minutes in Act 1 and then only in the Act 1 and Act 2 finales. So she she kind of has a showcase of 20 minutes. And um, I think as Marcelina, I'm setting myself up for a downfall maybe here, but because she's such an honest and pure and beautiful character, I think that has to come across vocally, whether you're at the top of a, a huge set or you know, whatever may, may be in the way. Those are the challenges, I think. Well, I guess you're not singing from either of the act finales, so you're singing something from your 20 minutes of glory. What are you going to sing for us? That's right. I'm going to sing Marcelina's aria, Ove Sean, which in IENO translation is If Only I Could Marry Today.
Thank you very much indeed, and Nicholas too. Nicholas, you've been living with this corps as the assistant conductor for, I guess, a long while through this summer. Does it still have the capacity to surprise you, this music? I think it certainly surprised me. Um, I hadn't worked on it before, and I was, I was expecting it to be good, but I didn't realise how good. I now understand why Mahler called it the opera of operas. And, and, and if you think about it, what are the distinctive qualities? What is it? I mean, maybe what Mahler recognised, but what have you come to see as the distinctive qualities within this score? It is so unique as an opera, not only being the only opera by a basically symphonic instrumental composer, but um, it lies on the cusp of the classical and romantic. It looks back to Mozart, which Beethoven knew so well, but it also looks forward re way through the 19th century. Florestan looks forward to Wagner, the held in tenor roles. Um, that, that's a very exciting intersection. The, the, the criticism, and in a way it's implicit in what I quoted from Fjordfenger at the beginning, mm -hmm. is that in the end we make an allowance because we're moved deeply, but in the end this is a symphonic rather than, if you like, a theatrical piece. I feel a little protective about it, having worked on it and loved it so much. Um, I don't see why a piece of lyric theatre has to necessarily obey all the customs that we're used to. And I, I, um, I, I see it rather as a strength that Beethoven brings his incredible, incredible musical intelligence to bear on, on the operatic form. Um, the, the, it's unusual, I think, when one's worked on a piece for maybe seven or eight hours a day for over two months, that one gets to the stage where one just would love to do the same again for another two months. Uh, um, <laughs> I, yeah, it's, it's the quality of the music is just unsurpassed, I think. And, and another way of thinking about the symphony, but in a positive way, is of course it makes the same journey uh, as all of the Beethoven symphonies, from the sense of darkness, of shadow, through to triumphant light. It's an astonishing journey. Uh, it, absolutely, and um, the techniques that Beethoven uses to to organise and organises instrumental forms and uh, uh, are applied to opera um, in a way that. It, none of the, no other composer does in quite the same way. It's, it, it, the, it, there are kind of proto-Wagnerian uh, motif, uh, motifs, but also used in Beethoven's classical way. It's, it is very unusual in that respect. There's nothing like it. Nicholas, thank you very much mm. indeed. Um, ladies and gentlemen, our last guest is now with us. It's Edward Gardner, who is, of course, the music director here mm. at English National Opera. Will you please welcome Edward Gardner? you'll need to borrow Natalie's microphone, I think. Um, <laughs> or you can share them both in stereo. Um, Edward, is Fidelio an opera that ought to be in every self-respecting opera company's repertoire? 
Um, that's a big question. I think, I mean, uh, to echo what Nicholas says, I think the music is, the music is unsurpassed. I mean, there's nothing like it. It's, it, it has all the glories of the classical era and it, it, it embraces and, and, and introduces so much of the romantic. Um, it's, I don't agree with Weckler about it, actually. I think the, the beauty of this piece is that it's, um, it's the text the, is one thing. There's this layer of text, which is this basic story. But Beethoven's painting, is, that's too weak a word, Beethoven's embodiment of the underlying emotions of humanity in the piece are unlike any other opera I've ever been around. And actually, that's why I think directors have such a problem with it, because it's not something which can be directed, because it is, that's a fundamentally musical thing. And that's, you know, if, if, ever, if anyone was going to ask me uh, an opera to show people what music can do that that text alone can't do. There are certain pieces I would I would I would take them to. One, I mean, a lot of them would be 20th century actually. But I, I mean, I think about a Wozzeck maybe, or certainly a Janáček opera, uh, where the music has that quality. But this is another one like that, and and it really, I think this is why directors don't love the piece actually, because it's the music. What what is unspoken is a hundred times more important than what is. Is, is this your first Fidelio? Um, I did performances of Deborah Warner's, actually what I thought wonderful production in Glyndebourne, which, which she did in, uh, in 2004 and 2006. I did some of the performances in 2006 and I, I loved that actually. I really enjoyed that production. But coming back to it in, in a new production, has there been a sense of, of, of the, the very discovery that Nicholas was talking about as you've opened the score, a feeling of, 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 of new wonder at actually what Beethoven does here? Yeah, so it's, uh, I mean, we sit next to each other talking about it all day, every day. I mean, it's been wonderful. It's, uh, it's an extraordinary piece of music and um, its own history is extraordinary. I'm sure you talked about this earlier, but you know, the, the way that Beethoven, Beethoven grappled so much with it through through his first versions of the piece, Leonora. We talked also about, I don't know if any of you, there's a wonderful recording of Leonora, which John Elliott Gardner did. I don't know if any of you have heard it, but it's really, it's really wonderful about, you know, the first genesis of this great piece. Actually, it's a much more classical piece, but he uses Le what we now know as Leonora's two, Leonora two overture. And it's so experimental and, and wonderful. And I, I beseech anyone to go, you know, go and listen on Spotify when, maybe not when you get home tonight, but sometime over the weekend. Yeah, those of us with longer memories than the Rugomenity will, of course, remember a famous season when the company here did both Leonora and Fidelia. Right, yes. Which was just an astonishing experience because suddenly you saw the journey Beethoven made. Yes. Both operas entirely different in a, in a curious <coughs> way, both absolutely valid in their own right. It became an extraordinary exercise, mm. I think. In, in terms of preparing um, the, 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 the orchestra here, ha have you made decisions about what you wanted the piece to sound like, how you wanted them to play? Yeah, we did, and we worked on a. Um, we're working with quite a lean sound, and that's not to say it's not sort of emotionally imbued, but just a string sound which doesn't have a lot of vibrato. Isn't isn't very very fluffy, I'd say, is, is an adjective I use. And I do that for two reasons, because I, I think I think the clarity of the inner parts is really important in this music. But the other one is that our pit where I'm conducting down, you know, the orchestral pit, is incredibly deep. And it's very, very hard to make um, intimate music sound 
to you guys, to the public. And what I find is that the, most, the, the more you hone the quality of the sound down, the better the result that comes out of the auditorium. Does it pose always a, an enormous problem? Here you are at the beginning of a season doing Fidelio, which we've all agreed is an extraordinary piece, but it's also a difficult piece. I mean, is it a challenge simply to decide, let's do Fidelio first and not give yourself a time to work in? Well, I mean, I can only really speak musically. I, I think it's the greatest joy to start a season with this piece. I, 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 I've, loved, I've loved every second of, of working on the music of it. I really, I think it's, um, I think it's a great masterpiece, and I, I, hope you, I, I hope you hear that in it tonight as well. Let's talk a little bit about the season, because we're at the beginning of, of, of this great 12 months, or nine months. Um, well, how would you characterise what we're going to hear in the, in the months to come? What are the kind of decisions that you think underpin what we're going to hear? I think range is the biggest thing I can say. I just, that's fantastic. I mean, to have, you know, the, the Fledermaus opening on Monday, a new Fledermaus, a really exciting-looking Fledermaus. I hope you all come to that. Um, and, you know, Richard Jones doing his first Rod, uh, Handel opera, Rodolinda, here. Um, and my, I mean, my personal highlights, bringing back the Peter Grimes that uh, will have grown even more from the time that we did it before. Um, and a new Cellini with Terry Gilliam, who directed our Damnation of Faust, and uh, we're doing loads of work and arguing a lot about about which version we should use of that. That's a, if any of you don't know it, it's a it's a, and not many people do actually because it isn't performed that regularly. It's a real it's a monster of a piece which needs uh, which sort of needs its wings clipping to make it in any way practicable. <laughs> and do you, do you choose quite carefully what you want to do? Do you get a, a, a first pick? Yeah, I do. I, yeah, I'm very careful about it, actually. Yeah. Well, it's funny. I, I mean, I'll be really honest about it. I think there are certain things that work in this theatre miraculously well. Strauss, Wagner, Janacek, these composers. And I think there are ones that are unbelievably hard to bring off. And it's the lighter stuff. Actually, you know, Beethoven is probably on the cusp. I think Mozart here is extremely difficult. And, and actually, I haven't done that much since I've been here. But... Um, I am careful what I choose to, and I, you know, I try and do the big company pieces where I can, I can rehearse every day with the chorus and the orchestra. We've also got new works. Um, there's a, a revival of, of, of Thomas Addis's, but there's also a brand new piece, Julian Anderson's The Thebans. Mm. Um, can you tell us anything about that? Has anything begun to trickle out of Julian's study? Oh yeah, I mean, he's, it's, 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 a, it's a stream, it's a steady torrent of, of, of activity, but it's, um, it's, it's going to be a very, very exciting piece. It's all the three Sophocles Theban plays put into one evening with a wonderful, gritty um, libretto by Frank McGuinness, who, I, I don't know if any of you saw Oedipus the King at the National when Ray, F Ray Fiennes did it, but the quality of the language is fantastic. It's, it's so direct and, uh, and it'll speak so well through music. And Julian's underpinned it with music of, all I can say is high drama. It's presumably essential that there should be new works um, refreshing the repertoire. Otherwise, we simply turn the whole place into a museum. Yeah, that's right. And um, we've actually, it's funny that this is our. This is my first massive new product. I mean, new new piece written sort of bespoke for ENO. We've done other smaller things, but they take so long in gestation, actually. And you know, we've been talking. John Berry and I talked to Julian about this piece within my first few months of being music director here, but it just takes a long time. Ladies and gentlemen, we have a little time in hand, and if you would like to ask questions of any of our guests, of any of the things that we've talked about, or indeed other things, put your hand up and the roving microphone will catch you. Let's start at the back over there, and then we'll come to you at the front, sir. This is actually a 
question for Ed and Stephen as well. Um, you mentioned that the uh, overture is Leonora three and the string quartet. That, I gather, is the director's choice? Yes, yeah. I'm, uh, how did you feel about that? Um, the string, you've spoken about the string quartet already this evening, have you? Yeah, okay. Um, I think uh, I have, um, how should I put it? I have a big problem with doing Leonora 3 at the beginning of the evening because um, this, is a, this production came from Munich. I don't, don't know if this has been d discussed. So this had been done three or four times before it ever came here. And there wasn't much discussion about what could be changed, if I'm honest with you. I mean, I think Leonora 3 is one of the great things that Beethoven ever wrote, actually. As a, it's, but it's a tone poem. It's not an overture. It's a, as you were saying, you know, it, it expresses the whole piece. Um, the, the difficulty I have with it is, and you, you'll hear this when we perform it this evening, is that the ending is as explosive as the final chorus, this sort of ode to freedom and humanity. And it, your energy, both in the pit and hopefully in the auditorium, is, is incredibly heightened. And you have to go back then immediately into this small domestic argument and that's really hard. I find it incredibly hard to control myself with that, with that junction. And I think, I mean, I'll just ask you to think about that when we're doing it, actually, because it's, 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 it's very, very tough. It's even, actually, my previous experience of this piece is um, doing the Fidelio Overture as normal into the piece. It's even hard then, because the Fidelio Overture also has that feeling, although it's, um, it's much shorter, more compact, actually, in a way. Um, so that's my main thing about it. It's wonderful to have Leonora 3. It's always wonderful to hear it. But the juxtaposition, juxtaposition between the overture and the beginning of the opera is very difficult. Um, the string quartet as well was something that was, was, was there before. I mean, it's, what I'll say about this, to be fair, is that my experience of it is, is completely different from the audience. And many, many people in the audience have said how much they've enjoyed it. And certainly the playing of the string quartet themselves is, is absolutely first rate and wonderful from the Heath Quartet. Um, it's very strange for me to stop conducting for 10 minutes in the middle of an opera. <laughs> That's all I'm saying. <laughs> got another question in the front row here. Can we have the microphone back? got two. We'll take one and then two. You, please, uh, I'm wondering about the doing this in English. I wonder about the particular challenges of that or advantages of that. Yeah, it's very... Well, I think what you'll notice is the two the way that English works is very clear in two different ways in the piece. The first half, as Nicholas alluded to earlier, is, I mean, it's in the tradition of Mozart. It's a zingspiel, and actually, the text is quite direct, and it's, it's quite conversational, and it's not so heightened uh, in many regards, maybe Leonora's great aria aside. And so, actually, English works really powerfully there, and you should be able to pick up, you know, what is a difficult story here, I mean, really, at the best of times. The second half, is slightly different and we tried to David Patton you know who speaks German fluently has tried to replicate the sound of the German as much as much as possible but it's much more heightened the further into the piece you get and it's you know Naman Laws of Freude the, the idea of, of, of nameless love all these extraordinary images that that that, that Beethoven conjures up with his music um, and the relationship with language to um, to the rest of English language to the music, it changes a little bit actually. Um, but I mean, I always support doing doing these pieces in English, and, and 
German's not so far away, and you know Wagner. Of course, it was in the age before surtitles, but Wagner, uh, you know, was absolutely insistent that when his operas came to this country, they'd be done in English. And I think you know Beethoven's part of that tradition too. And I, you know, I support it, and we work we work incredibly hard at getting the diction as clear as we can for you too. Another question in front of me. This is a microphone. Yes, it's on its way. We saw the Lineborn production twice mm. and found it very engaging. Apart from the change at the beginning, the Leonora, are there other musical changes you want to tell us about? Um, do you mean in the Lineborn production or? No, no, here. Here. Changes from the, from, yes. Um, I, well, what I will say is um, the rhythm of the piece Calixto's chosen his own texts in certain parts of the of the uh, in between the numbers, and sometimes there isn't any text at all. And the rhythm of the piece changes very much, and that's that's a very interesting thing. If you know Fidelio well, you'll notice that 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 Beethoven, whatever one says about the original German text, Beethoven was knew exactly how long those bits would be in between the bits of music, and which music should flow quite quickly from one to another. Um, I think that's one, one major difference. But that, apart from the string quartet and the overture, th those are really the things. I mean, everything else is Fidelio as we all know it. I think we've time for one more question before we'll have to let the revelers in downstairs. Anybody like to ask a final question? Yes, there's a woman at the end. Wait, wait, will you wait till the microphone comes? Thank you. I hope this won't spoil it for the people who are seeing tonight, uh, but I couldn't understand the significance of the photos in the first act that were handed out. I saw the dress rehearsal. Yeah. Um, I, th I thought Maria had explained yeah, this. Yeah, I'd spoken a little bit about that, but I thought it was... I haven't spoken to Calixto about this, but I think it comes from the images of the mothers of the Plaza de Mayo in Argentina, because I think there is a, uh, an engagement with cultures of dictatorship through it. Borges, of course, was, was a writer that uh, was at his most prominent uh, towards the end of um, uh, the dictatorship in Argentina. And I think it's a visual homage to uh, the mothers of the Plaza de Mayo who carried photographs of their their children and grandchildren around with them and displayed them publicly as a way of ensuring nobody forgot that they didn't become a kind of hidden mass of disappeared, that they always had a face, the disappeared always had a face. And it's, it's remained a very important image of, of how we acknowledge those who, um, who society has uh, chosen to imprison illegitimately and forget about, that they should never be forgotten. So I think that's where that um, image comes from. But they were handed out to the prisoners, if I yeah. remember correctly, yeah. and it was the one photo, I think. I mean, several yeah, of, of, reproductions of yeah. the one photo, which I found of difficult Florestan. to understand. Of Florestan. Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 it was a Florestan, yeah. was yeah. it? Mm. It's, a, it's a photo of Florestan, so... But, I couldn't quite pick that out. But even I've, with seen, I've binoculars. seen other productions where, 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 where at the end you've had the, the, presumably the wives and partners of the prisoners arriving with photographs, trying to match the prisoner, who's presumably they've not seen for years, with the photographs. So there's a kind of, I think there's a, a, a lycanographic tradition that allows and indeed encourages. And, and we know it from our own, as Maria says, from our own century. Um, ladies and gentlemen, thank you all of you for being here. Um, uh, thank you for questions from those who've had a chance to ask questions. But our particular thanks to our four guests, Maria Delgado, Edward Gardner, Nicholas Ansel Evans, and Natalie Montehab. Thank you all very much indeed. <laughs>